We are reading today from Psalm 66. <clears throat> Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. Bless, your, uh, bless our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. For you, God, tests us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But you brought us out to abundance. I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings with the fragrant smoke of rams. I will sacrifice bulls with goats. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth and praise was on my tongue. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. This is the word of the Lord. Now friends, the psalm we're looking at this morning is um, in some ways a little bit tricky to understand because we live in a world that is highly individualised. So our, our society uh, is, um, you can rank any kind of community on a, on a number of different axes and one of these axes is uh, community versus individualism. So what's our priority? In our society today, we are highly, highly individualized. We don't pri uh, prioritize community in the same way as other cultures in other places do. And, this, uh, and this, the, the tricky part is that in our psalm, uh, it presents a kind of worldview and a definition of um, success uh, in worshipping God that is quite foreign to the way we live in the West in 2023. Now, our, our predominant value structure, our ideal life, is um, as, a, as a Western person, is that we have this sense of purpose and our purpose is to make ourselves happy. We have fulfilled our purpose when we have succeeded in life because we have lots of money or lots of fame or we have a, a good job or we are successful in business. 
Because we have this highly individualized culture, we actually don't believe that suffering is good. We don't value suffering. Suffering equals bad in our worldview. But that's not the case across the world. But we believe that pain is evil and ought to be eradicated. Emotional hurt is to be avoided at all costs. Uh, and if you are hurt, you just medicate it away. But if we are to understand the world rightly, if we are to learn anything from our psalm today, we have to understand that that particular view that we hold is actually not the way God sees the world. And so I'd like to invite you on a journey this morning as, uh, as, we, as we travel into, in a sense, a worldview that is quite different from our own. A worldview that is shaped by how God sees reality, about how God sees the world should work. And then as we look at um, our world from that perspective, we will start to see the world as it really is. In a sense, I'm asking us to put on our God goggles uh, and to look at how our lives ought to work, how we are to understand what happens to us. And when we do that, the first thing we realize as we look at our psalm as we do this is that we are to praise God because he sovereignly rules the world. He has a plan for the world and he is working that plan out. And we see that in verses 1 to 4. Uh, the psalmist says, Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God, to God. Sing glory to his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies cringe before you because of your great strength, and the whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. The psalmist says that the entire earth will glorify God. And here's the thing, everyone on earth will in fact bring glory to God. That is an inevitable end for every human being. It is just a question of the matter of, like it's just a matter of time before that will happen. You and I and everyone in the world will one day stand before God. And the psalmist here says that the whole earth will worship, will glorify God on that day and sing praise to his name. One day we will all stand before God and give him glory, but we will do that in one of two uh, states, one of two kind of situations. Either we will find ourselves in the company of God's enemies who cringe before him, or we will find ourselves in the company of God's friends, his family. We're either going to glorify God by suffering his wrath for the, uh, at the evil and wickedness we have committed in this life, or we will glorify him in gratitude that Jesus took on and suffered his wrath for the evil and wickedness that we have committed in our lives. It's really one or the other. There are no other options. In the end, we will glorify God. We will glorify him either into going into eternal destruction or entering into eternal life because of Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, which group of people do I want to be a part of? And that depends mostly, I think, on whether you take on a worldly point of view or a godly point of view. You see, our world, our worldview today is that we are, in fact, our own God. In our society, every person has a right, not even just a right, but a duty actually, to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. Our society says that you are the king of your own castle, that you should do the things that make you happy, 
that you should pursue whatever your heart tells you is real and authentic for you. You are to do this even at the expense of your family if they don't agree with you. In short, our world tells us that each one of us is our own God, that we should sit on the throne of our lives and do with our money, our body, our actions, our stuff, whatever we choose, because everything belongs to us. We have a right to it. To paraphrase our psalm, the world says, uh, shout joyfully to me. Let my stuff bring me the glory of my name. Let my desires make me glorious. And let everyone around me worship me and the choices I make. May they sing praise to me, for if they don't, I'll just cut them out of my life. This is the song our world wants us to sing. But the psalmist calls us to sing a different song. The psalmist calls us to say, praise God. Sing about his glory. Make his praise glorious. You're going to do it anyway, says the psalmist, either as his enemy or as his child. So in a sense, choose to be on the right side of history. Declare that it is God who sits on the throne of your heart. Recognize that it is he who actually calls the shots. Declare that it is God who has the right to tell us what to do with our lives. That we do not have the right to live whatever life we want. We don't get to be uh, consumed by our possessions or to live in whatever way we want or to make whatever choice seems most convenient to us. No, friends, as, as believers, as God's people, we have been purchased with the blood of Jesus. We have been bought with a price. In fact, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. We are not our own God. We're actually not in control of our lives. We are the Father's adopted children. And we all belong to Him. And because of that, we will be with his people as the whole earth worships him one day. And so we live with a different set of values, a different set of priorities, because we've actually seen God's plan play out among the generations. The psalmist says here, we are to praise God, verses 1 to 4, and then 5 to 7 gives us the why. He says, why should you do this? Why should you align yourself with God's version of reality? Why should you praise and glorify his name? Verse 5 invites you, come and see, I'll tell you why. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity is inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land. They crossed the river on foot. Now we all know our Bibles really well, so we know what the psalmist is talking about, don't we? No? Well, what the psalmist is saying is, look, God deserves to be glorified, not us, because he's working out his sovereign plan. He has been from the beginning. He turned the sea into dry land. The psalmist is talking about how God saved Israel out of Egypt, how he parted the sea and allowed Israel to escape from Pharaoh. When he's talking about they crossed the river on foot, he's talking about how God dried up the river Jordan as Israel went in to take possession of the, of the promised land. And so what the psalmist is saying is that God should be glorified because he keeps his promises. 
You see, God had promised to Abraham that he would one day make him into a great nation, that he would give him the promised land, that he would bless the whole world through him. And this is a development, really, of the promise that God made right after the world fell into sin, that one day he would fix the issue of sin. And the psalmist here is referencing the fact that God has fulfilled his promises. He says, look, see what God has done. He is trustworthy. He is the one you can trust to come through with the goods at the end of the day. He is the God who delivered Israel from, uh, from, from Pharaoh. He is the one who gave Israel the promised land just like he said he would. And as a Christian today, we reading this can say, look, yes, God has done even that, but not only that, he has done far more. He's proven himself to be even more trustworthy than only Israel could tell at the time. Because he's delivered us not from enslavement to Pharaoh, but actually he's fulfilled the much greater promise. He has saved us from our sin. He has come through with the goods in Jesus Christ and he has actually fulfilled the promise not just to Abram, but the one made straight after the fall into sin. That one day one would come who would wind back the curse of sin. And that you and I are saved through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross when we believe in him. And so we will stand and align our lives with him, give him praise and live for him, worship him with our bodies and our stuff and our sense of morality and all these things because God is a trustworthy God. We follow a God who fulfills his promises. The psalmist would sing with us when we sing, Great is your faithfulness, O God my Father. All I have needed your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Father, to me. He would say, Yes, Amen, and verily. So we, friends, when we see that God is a God who has fulfilled his promises over and over and has delivered even us out of our sin, we are to praise God for his sovereign rule, for the fact that he works his plan out through history. That's the first thing our psalm invites us to see. But now having established that God sovereignly rules the world and therefore ought to be praised, the psalmist takes the next kind of logical step. He says, now if God sovereignly rules and he's working out his plan, well then if God is in control, then suffering must be part of his plan. And therefore we are to praise God even in our suffering because he is using our suffering for our good. So let's have a look at what the psalmist says. I read here from, uh, from verse 8. Bless our God, you peoples. So he's talking to the nations around them. He says, bless our God. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He kept us alive and did not let our feet slip. For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap and you placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to abundance. Now, I don't know about you, but I have yet to hear a modern worship song that praises God for the fact that he let men ride over our heads, that he lured us into a trap and that he placed burdens on our back. And yet this is God's inspired word. He says, this is how you are to praise me. 
And so the psalmist drastically, very drastically, changes the way he says you, sh you shouldn't think of your suffering the way you do. You see, our world has this view that all suffering is, in fact, bad. Now, hopefully this works. Um, this is the premise of our world. It says, one of the consistent arguments against God's existence is that suffering exists in the world. And so God cannot exist. This is the argument. The premise is, God is, you know, God is good. God is all-powerful. Suffering exists. Suffering is evil. Therefore, either God must not exist, because if he existed, then he would uh, do something about suffering, or he must not be powerful, because if he was existed and was all-powerful, then he would do something about suffering, or he must not be good, and therefore you ought not to worship him. So because um, if he was good and all-powerful, then he would prevent the evil of suffering, and since suffering exists, God, and God hasn't done anything about it. That's the, one of the consistent arguments in the world. Suffering exists, therefore God can't be real. But friends, there are two significant flaws with this argument, actually, that the psalmist points out for us. The first flaw is that the thought that suffering is, in fact, evil. But that just isn't true. Suffering itself is not evil. It's just uncomfortable. Suffering in and of itself is neither good or evil. It just is. If you're suffering because someone hurt you or damaged you, the suffering you are undergoing itself is not evil. The person who hurt you and did the thing is the one who's committed the evil. They are evil or their action is evil, but the suffering it causes itself is not evil. Suffering is, in fact, the result of evil. Now, it can be the result of your own evil or your own wrongdoing. You know, it's true that you can suffer because you've done something wrong. You know, I, I am a big fan of the um, uh, ancient Disney movie Aladdin. It's one of my favorites. I grew up on it. And in the opening scene of the movie, Aladdin is caught stealing food. And so the guards catch him and they're about to cut off his hand. Now, in the law of that day, if you're caught stealing, they cut off your hand. You lose your hand because of the stealing. It prevents you very, um, very effectively from taking something else again because you have nothing to take with. Um, but now in the movie, Aladdin escapes. But imagine if his hand actually was chopped off. He would suffer, wouldn't he? But in that law system, whether we consider that right or just or not, the suffering he undergoes is because of the sin, the evil he committed. He stole something. If we rob a bank, we go to jail. Jail is uncomfortable. Our freedom is taken away. We suffer because of the evil we've committed. The suffering in itself is not evil. So it's true you can suffer for doing your own evil. But very often we actually suffer because of the evil of other people. Because of other people's sin. If you own the bank that was robbed and you're now bankrupt, you're suffering because of someone else's evil. And then there is suffering that exists in the world which has no human cause, but it is still the result of evil, of sin. Think of an earthquake or a tsunami or a terrible natural disaster. These things can cause immense human suffering. But the Bible teaches us that even these natural disasters come about because of the very fact that the earth is cursed, which is a result of sin. These natural disasters happen because Adam and Eve sinned and the world was put under a curse 
because the world was under their authority. And when they broke uh, you know, that relationship with God, everything that they had authority over was cursed along with them. Even a natural disaster is because the world is groaning under the weight of sin. Suffering comes about because of evil. Suffering itself is not evil. So point three of the argument there, point four, sorry, of the argument there is simply not true. Suffering is painful, yes. But that doesn't mean that it in itself is evil. Sin is evil and evil causes suffering. But now look at what the psalmist calls us to do with our suffering. He says, if you're going to live in the world as God sees it, if you're going to live in the real world, you look at it through God's eyes, what does the psalmist teach us to do? He calls everyone around him, the nations around him, to bless God, to praise God for his suffering, for the suffering of Israel. Bless you, our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Why? Because he has kept us alive during our suffering. He lured us into a trap. He placed burdens on our backs. He let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. The psalmist calls the world to praise God because Israel went through suffering. Friends, the Bible has a much more robust theology of suffering than we do. We can praise God not for the evil that caused suffering, but for the suffering itself. Why? Because for a Christian, suffering is a peculiar gift. If we believe that God is all-powerful and sovereign, that he rules over the world, that he's working his plan of salvation out into the world, that he is a loving father that gives good gifts to his children, then suffering is a gift from God that refines us. That's what the psalmist is saying. He says it, it purifies Israel like um, you take out impurities out of metal. You take out the dross to make the gold shiny. In suffering, God gives us a gift because we cry out to him. He gives us a deeper relationship with him. In suffering, God strengthens our faith and gives us a peace that is, uh, that is well beyond what the world offers us for things of peace, like material goods or friendship. When we suffer, God strengthens us with endurance that is well beyond our capacity as his spirit works in our heart. And in suffering, God gives us the opportunity to follow our Lord Jesus, who gave us the perfect example of how to live in suffering. Because he took our sins on himself. He suffered for us God's wrath, which is far worse than anything the world can throw at us. He did that willingly so that we could be our children, uh, his children. And so when we suffer, we actually follow Christ in his suffering. So the world says suffering, bad. Get rid of it. Distract yourself from it. Pretend it doesn't exist. Medicate it away. But the Christian says suffering is for my good. Suffering is not evil. It's the result of evil. But God is using it for my good. 
And so that's the first flaw in that argument. But then there's a second flaw which is a little bit more hidden. And that is that for God to be good, he must stop suffering from happen. Otherwise, he's either not all powerful or not all good. And God has done nothing about suffering, so therefore he can't exist. But you see, friends, God actually has done something about suffering. He's done something about the cause of suffering, which is sin itself. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God has, in fact, put an end to suffering. It just hasn't happened yet. One day, when the full number of God's chosen people will be saved, God will redeem the world. Jesus will come back again. And on that day, he will redeem this earth and change it completely so that every tear will be dried up, every pain will cease, every illness will be healed, and even the pain of death will end. And he can do that because Jesus has already come to take on the sin of of, uh, the world, of his people, so that they don't have to suffer in the end. God has, in fact, done something about suffering. It just doesn't happen yet from our perspective. But from God's perspective, with God's goggles on, standing outside of time, he's already dealt with the problem of suffering. So there are two flaws with this argument, which you need to learn so that you can talk to people about that. But now, if we have this vision, if we've captured this vision for suffering, look at what happens to the psalmist. He radically changes the way he lives his life. So once the psalmist puts on these God goggles, what does he do? Once he starts seeing things from God's perspective, what does he do? He says, to everyone who will listen, come and praise God. Verse 13, he says, I will enter your house with burnt offerings, and I will pay my vows my lips, uh, sorry, I will pay you my vows that my lips promised. My mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you a fattened sheep as burnt offerings with fragrant smoke of rams. I will sacrifice bulls with goats and so on. What's happening here is that the psalmist starts seeing his suffering as something for which he can be thankful and he is overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness. He's overwhelmingly thankful to God. He, um, we don't understand this because we don't live in the Jewish kind of ancient Near Eastern world. But he wants to offer God far more offerings than is required for someone who wants to give a thanksgiving to God. He's bringing multiple burnt offerings. Everything he vowed for God during his, his distress, he brings multiple fattened sheep, he brings rams, he throws on bulls and so on. He even adds a few goats as the kind of cherry on top of the thanksgiving offering. We're meant to understand that he is just lavishing God with thanksgiving gifts because God has brought him uh, a, a change in him because of his suffering. This is well over what is required to give thanks to God. And there's a reason for this. The psalmist has come to a realisation. He's been reflecting on God's goodness. He realises that even suffering is for his good. And then he realises that God saved him. He himself personally has been saved from his sin. Look at what happens. In the psalm, the whole psalm is about 
the psalmist speaking to the people around him, to the nations. He says, you should praise nations, you should praise people. But now he says, listen to what God has done for me personally. The psalm pivots to the psalmist's own experience. And his experience is that he has been purified when he turned to God. Come, I will tell you what God has done for me. I cried out to him, but if I was aware of malice in my heart, he wouldn't have listened, but he did listen. And he has not turned from saving, uh, from his faithful covenant love for me. Therefore God is to be praised. That's what the psalmist says. Do you see what was needed for the psalmist here? He needed to understand the condition of his own heart. He needed to recognise that his heart was the problem. And because his heart had been fixed, he was saved. But is that not the same for us? We can't approach God with a sense of arrogance and malice or haughtiness before him. We can't come to God arrogantly expecting that he must forgive our sins. Because that's who he is, isn't it? Or that he must accept us because of who we are and all the good things we've done. No, we must come before God like the psalmist does, with a humble and a contrite heart. With, the, uh, with a heart that says, please Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because when we come before him like that, recognising that actually we do have malice in our hearts, we do have sin that lives there, we do actually want to be the king who sits on our own throne in our own hearts. That we do in fact have a problem, that we have our relationship broken with him. When we come with that kind of heart and seek his forgiveness, seek him to, to enter us into his presence through the death of Jesus, when we turn to Christ who stood in our place so that God's faithful love to us would be fulfilled, when we do that, we enter into a relationship with God that we need to be in that group of people who will give him glory forever. And when that relationship between us and God is fixed through our Lord Jesus Christ, what happens to us? We want to bring rams and goats and bulls and we want to give everything to him because he's given everything for us. And then like the psalmist, when that is our experience, like the psalmist, we can say to those around us, Come and see what the Lord has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth and he answered my cry for mercy. And so I will praise him with my life. And it's my prayer that that will be your experience as you cry out to the Lord for mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we, uh, I guess that we have here the words of, of, psalm, uh, of this psalm written down for us so that we can learn to see our world as it is, that is through your eyes.
and not through the, the eyes and the worldview of our, um, of our society. Thank you that we can see that because you are sovereignly in control and that you are working your plan of redemption out, even in our lives, that even the difficult things we go through are gifts from you to change us and shape us if we, uh, if we are your children. Thank you, Lord, that you change our hearts into contrite hearts. Hearts that recognise that we actually do have a problem and we need to be saved, every day even, from, uh, from our fleshy selves, I guess. Thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who stood in our place, who took your wrath for us, And when that captures our hearts, Lord, we pray that you will help us to live with this extreme thankfulness and gratitude that the psalmist shows us here. May we offer everything because you offered everything. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.